McDeal Podcast. Moi! Uh-huh. Moi! Hey, thanks for dropping by again for the the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Deal, and I'm here again this week with uh, my friend Hank Godwin for the our Halloween edition of Storytellers. We are also on location for this this episode at uh, Park Hill Barbershop with uh, Juan and Gary. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hey. Anything you all, y'all want to say before we get started with our stories? We don't have enough time for that. They may have a lot to say after. After, after, okay. I'm ready for the story. Yeah, one of one of the reasons we're doing the the show here is back on our first storyteller show, uh, Hank had read a story about meeting Juan and stuff, and we got to talking about my first experience here at the barber shop that. Occasionally, I grow a beard, and when it gets time, I get tired of it, and I it's time to shave it off. That's a pain. So I started looking to see where I could get a, a shave. I'd always wanted to go to the barber shop and get a shave, and found that Gary did those here, or Juan did those here, and so I came up to to get it cut off. And I just so happened the night before I came up here watch the movie Sweeney Todd. I don't know if you know about what it's about, but it's it's about a barber that slits folks' throats and then they end up cooking them in meat pies. Very, very uplifting movie. But I'd watched that the night before and I mentioned it uh, when I came up here and when I got my shave. And I think Juan had some new, some new blades that he was trying out and he cut me, <laughs> but not not bad. But uh, I've been back a couple of times since Just then. Just enough to make it seem realistic. Yeah. <laughs> so when I told Hank about that when we were talking about our next uh, storyteller show, he said, "Hey, it'd be a cool idea to do the show from there." So he talked to the guys, and uh, they agreed. So here we are. So you never know what tales come from. Uh, a barber shop. So Hank, Hank's got a story, and he's going to start off with, with his story. All right. I, I think I need a little bit of background here. Other than that, I always dedicate my um, stories and to someone, and this is dedicated to Juan and Gary, of course. Thank you. And uh, I, uh, the story. First off, I do not. I seldom write fiction because all of my stories are about emotion and things that have happened to me. So I, um, this is the, my second attempt at fiction, so that's my disclaimer if it doesn't work out right. <laughs> I, read, I read the first version of your story and I liked it. Oh, so. I did, I did. Well, it, it, you're part of that inspiration too with <laughs> you having to get your, your throat cut. The name of the story is called Edna Matthews. So here we go. 
Where is my razor, Gary moaned. You are always accusing me of your incompetence, Juan defensively bellowed. <laughs> ah, there it is, that comfortable feeling of being wrapped in the dependable sameness of the barbershop experience. I love my barbershop. I love my barbers, Juan and Gary. They are dependable in every way. They are smart, funny, and highly predictable. Old people like myself thrive on dependable, predictable sameness of routine. Moments like getting a haircut or a shave. Today was no different from any other day at the barbershop. You can count on Juan and Gary now, but they both have darker past. Long before marriage, kids, and responsibility, uh, Gary hides his training well. He was special forces, possibly SEAL team, training in his background. He is unassuming and has misplaced his bucked out physique. It took him four years of training to acquire, but less than six months of marriage to unwind his <laughs> abdominal six-pack thanks to his wife's gravy and biscuits. It was harder to give up the high of a special ops mission. He could have turned to drugs, but he preferred elaborate neighborhood pranks under the cover of darkness. Instead of storming a beach in Somalia, he recently crawled through his neighbor's Nandina bushes to burn down Cheryl McHenry's she shed. We all need to fight the scourge of she or she sheds in our neighborhood. Juan, on the other hand, is a closet artist. His creative nature overwhelms him. The opening of the barbershop scratched his itch for a brief while, decorating and designing every facet, but it didn't last long. He is a street artist, tagging rail cars, blank wall building walls, or an occasional abandoned pickup truck seems to pacify his dark need to be bad. He has retired from graffiti art after achieving his goal of a mural on a New York City subway. After all, it is the Holy Grail. However, every day he imagines a scene from the movie Frozen on that empty wall on the monogramming shop across the street. <laughs> he misses his harmless stress relief. Juan has owned Park Hill Barbershop since he was 19 years old. He quickly spun his young entrepreneurial skills into a successful enough business to hire a minion, his friend Gary. Both genuinely enjoy what they do, and more importantly, they understand and enjoy their customers. They have further honed their trash-talking skills, nurtured by their friendship, into a customer-friendly version. They recognize the thin line between funny and offensive, and quickly step back when approaching, most of the time. This is a neighborhood barbershop, not a salon, not a parlor, and certainly not a reservations-only type of place. You come, you sit, and wait. A bit later, you get to sit on the throne of honor, all the time being entertained by Juan and Gary. Oh yes, and once in a while, an interesting guest may add to the experience. No different from any other day, the small tin bell on the door gleefully told and announced our newest guest, a guest with a dark secret of his own. Like many very old people, he worried about his next, when his next bowel movement would surprise him and paid no attention to when it was appropriate to shower. As he hesitantly stepped into the barbershop, it was the lack of a recent shower that defined him for the rest of us. 
It was one of those forever smells, that bitter, metallic, rancid fruit smell that seeks every corner of the kitchen when you open the fridge door. There was no escaping his odor, no place to run. If only this was the only disturbing thing about him. His stare never settled on other people's eyes, only his own in the barbershop mirror behind Juan. He was that guy, the customer that comes through the shop door and you wish would find another barber. They either talk too much, don't tip, or just make other guests feel uncomfortable. He was that guy. He deliberately settled into his chair across the one occupied barber chair, signaling the choice of barbers and started in on his unwanted personal tale. My name is Ezra Matthews, and I was happily married for 53 years. Edna patiently waited for me as I fought the Great War. I still remember her kiss when I returned. She loved me from the day we met in Central Park to the day she died in my arms. No one understood our deep love. We had no pets or children. We had each other for 53 years. No one understood, he said, his weak voice trailing off at the end. Juan and Gary are usually cool with, a, with awkward pauses to let the conversation shift to the next patron or subject. But this moment begged for a probing follow-up question to Mr. Matthews. Instinctively, I knew it was a bad thing to do. I had participated in many train wreck conversations. Those you hate, but can't turn away from. None of us in the Park Hill Barbershop that day anticipated his next words. I killed her. Her dying words professed her love for me, but I still killed her. I paid my dues. I'm 99 years old and incapable of harming anyone. Somehow the warden found mercy in his heart to advocate for my release. I think our common experience helped me when it came time. He had suffered from infidelity, that overwhelming stench of betrayal from someone he had worshipped. His deep understanding of the evil of unfaithfulness bound us together. I've walked and slept in hell, enough hell for ten men, Warden Collins understood. This is my first free day in 27 years. I need a shave and a haircut. We all saw it as Juan's chair emptied and Ezra Matthews rose to take his place. Simultaneously, an apparition rose out of the chair next to him, only visible in the mirror. Luckily, Juan caught it out of his corner of his eye. We assumed it was Edna. She was an attractive 70-something with a disarmingly sweet smile. The ghastly scene would have seemed normal if it weren't for the fact that her thin, long, gray, well-kept hair did a poor job of covering a gnarly scar just, just above the neckline of her flower print dress. It was one of those scars that didn't seem to heal. Huge clumps of folded skin, alternated with gaping soft tissue like it was cut many times. You could feel the unbridled pain and passion of her killer in that scar. From my elevated chair st staring at the mirror, I could see the barber's razor in her hand. My eyes jumped again to her sweet smile. It had been replaced with a more sinister sheepish grin. I have the gift of asking the wrong question at the wrong time but for Juan's sake, I'm glad I did this time. I honestly was trying to change the subject, 
because I was trapped in Gary's chair with an unfinished cut. I wanted to run, but I stayed for one more question. Mr. Matthews, what was your profession? I was a barber, specializing in classic cuts and shaves. Not one drop of blood in 50 years, he proudly proclaimed. Because Juan and Gary were both standing, they could see the blade in the mirror, which was now bloodstained. They could also see her changing face. Her eyes were sunken. Her smile had turned brown. It was a face of determination. It was the face of revenge. It was also inevitable, as inevitable as a crowing feral Kauai rooster. The crow, they crow because it is their nature. It is genetic. Nothing can stop them but final death. Edna was going to get her revenge. Juan could see it in her eyes. In mere seconds, the devoted and innocent twinkle was gone and replaced by a deep, dark void. Juan knew her revenge was inevitable. Her spirit would take over his steady hand and turn his shop into a horrific Sweeney Todd event. He wanted nothing to do with it. Gary, you got this? I need to hit Sherwin-Williams, Juan pleaded to his best friend as he bolted out the barbershop door. The tiny tin bell gleefully told the certain fate for the rest of us. That's it. <laughs> oh, he bolted. He bolted. <laughs> Gary, he left you. <laughs> got him out of there. That's the prerogative of the boss. The boss gets to do that. Well, I've got a story. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I got a story. Sweet. Yeah. I, I normally don't write. I've, I've tried it occasionally, and um, I'm not very good at it. They all seem pretty derivative. And most of my writing comes in the form of Facebook rants and occasional writes about the work I do with the band. But last year, or year before last, I had an idea come to me, and I, I wrote it down. So... I'm going to read my, my little short story. It's, it's a lot shorter than yours, but here we go. I've come home, a short Halloween story. I love Halloween, always have. I grew up in Malden, a small town in southeast Missouri, a vibrant little town of about 5,000. Main street lined with busy mom and pop shops and a single screen movie theater where I saw such classics as Blackula, Children shouldn't play with dead things and the green slime. A quiet little town surrounded by cotton, corn, and soybean fields. But what I loved most about Malden was that it was a town that loved and embraced Halloween. The downtown store windows were painted in Halloween themes by high school art students. Jack-o'-lanterns were carved and set out except for houses that you knew not to visit. Whether you were young or old, Halloween always kicked off with a parade. Sidewalks full of parents with children dressed in cheap plastic masks, older kids dressed as vampires, werewolves, witches, and mummies. The parade was your standard small town parade, the high school band followed by floats, Shriners driving around in little cars, the Halloween queen, and a fire truck with someone dressed in a weird costume of glowing orbs and tendrils throwing out candy. 
With Halloween officially started, kids scattered to roam the streets unattended for hours. Once we outgrew trick-or-treating, we'd spend the night rolling or egging houses and avoiding the local police. It was a great time to live in Malden. No one ever talked about the occasional child that went missing. This next part I've never shared with anyone and spent years convincing myself that I'd dreamed it. My junior year in high school, I was out with some friends egging teachers' teachers' houses. We had gotten separated when the police showed up and we scattered. I had to walk by the cemetery that was near my house. I always tried to avoid this old cemetery because with its ancient trees and gloom about it, even during the day, it seemed oddly alive. But that night, I had no choice unless I wanted to, to take a chance on getting caught by the police. As I was taking the back way around to get home, I heard chanting and noticed a green glow coming from the oldest part of the cemetery. As I got closer, I saw a small group of people standing around a fire chanting. Some of the faces I recognized, but some I didn't. The mayor, a bank president, the school superintendent, a couple of business owners, and several councilmen. The low chanting was mostly unintelligible except for the phrase, Yog Sothoth, repeated several times. In the middle of the circle, by the strange green fire, was a squirming, whimpering burlap bag. As the chanting grew louder, everyone in the circle stepped forward and held up a long-bladed knife. I took off running and didn't wait to see what I knew was coming next. I've grown up, moved away, raised a family, and don't make it back to my hometown very often. But I've seen it suffer the same fate of many small towns across the country. Slowly decaying, the movie theater long gone, empty storefronts and overgrown lots lining Main Street, a declining population as folks leave for lack of jobs. I've heard the combination of reasons, the bypass around town diverting traffic, Walmart, decline of family farms, bad decisions by city government, but I know they aren't true. I've read one by one the obituaries of the town fathers I saw standing in that circle so many years ago. I know the real reason. I know. I've grown nostalgic for my hometown and the Halloween of my youth. Halloween has become big business. The rush and excitement of going from house to house replaced by trunk or treat, homemade costumes replaced by slutty this and slutty that store-bought outfits, outfits, the simple eeriness of a single candle-lit jack-o'-lantern on the porch replaced by tacky and overdone yard decorations. So on this dark, moonless Halloween night, I've come home. I've come home to make Malden great again. <laughs> the end. That's awesome. <laughs> that is good. We have another story. Uh, a friend of ours uh, that you both Hank and I used to work with, uh, uh, Jim Murphy, is a, a writer, a photographer, a world traveler, uh, a scuba diver, and he's written several books uh, I think like six novels six or seven novels a book of poetry a book of essays and uh, I talked to him about doing a story for the show and uh, he agreed but he said he wasn't much of a reader so if somebody else wanted to read a story it'd be fine so we've, I picked out one of his stories and uh, here it is now Bill's Above by Jim Murphy from his book of short stories, The Last Romanian Frogman. With her hands on her knees, Janet retched urgently upon the squash plants in the vegetable garden. The partially digested breakfast from her stomach mixing with the red and black chunks of tomato from her mouth. 
The ripe red tomato she had just bitten into was black and rotten at the core, nasty and repulsive and wormy, and it was as much the idea of this putrescence in her mouth as the taste that made her stomach want to turn inside out. How could something so beautiful on the outside be so diseased on the inside? She got the garden hose and rinsed her mouth and face, and then rinsed off the squash plants as Eddie came over to see what had happened to her. Bad tomatoes, she said. I should know not to just take a big bite out of something without checking it out better, but it sure looked okay. Eddie took the hose and let the water run over his head. He did not seem to be much wetter for it. The humidity had been unbelievable for the past several weeks, and this month had been the hottest month on record. The previous month had broken the earlier month's record, and so it had been since spring, and so it had been every year for the past five. In addition to the heat and humidity, the flies had been awful this month, especially this week, and most especially today. They were not normal-looking flies either. Some were fuzzy, while others were shiny bluish-green. Some bit hard, while others simply would not leave a person alone, constantly flitting around one's eyes, ears, and nose. Janet's father had always said that killing a single fly in April was like killing hundreds in August. Now she wished she had killed more flies this spring, but there had hardly been a spring, the seasons going almost directly from autumn to summer, with only a few days of winter. Even the few days of winter had not been very cold. The air temperature had never even reached freezing. Every winter for the last few years had been warmer than the previous, and this was why, according to Eddie, there were more flies every year. It never got cold enough anymore to reduce their numbers. But these flies were different than the ones they were used to, the ones they had grown up with. There were more kinds of flies now, and some of them were vicious. Janet picked a few more tomatoes to take inside, examining them carefully for wormholes. She put them in the bassinet with Gracie, who gurgled happily at the pretty red balls while waving her little arms ineffectually in the air. Janet hardly let little Gracie out of her sight, even to work in the garden. In the kitchen, Janet sliced into the first ripe tomato and suppressed an impulse to wretch again. The red fruit was crawling inside with tiny white worms. She tossed the tomato into the trash. The garbage disposal was not working because the electricity had gone out that morning. There was no air conditioning and no refrigeration. They only had the breeze that came through the screens. Janet did not mind the heat. She loved the summertime and all the life it brought. Gracie took after her mother in this regard, but poor Eddie suffered in the hot days and had only taken the day off from work to help because Janet had said the garden was getting away from her. She wiped the sweat out of her eyes and sliced another tomato. It was also full of worms. How had they gotten into the fruit, she wondered. There was no sign of damage on the outside. She looked closer and saw what might have been several tiny holes around the stem area. She had never seen this before. It seemed they had a new garden pest now. She examined the remaining tomatoes. Every one of them was infested. She felt like crying. All their work had been for nothing. The corn had earworms, the peppers had maggots, the squash had worms, and now the tomatoes, too, were lost. She cut around the black rotten centers of the tomatoes and managed to save a few bits of healthy red tomato from each one. That was what one did in situations like this. Just get rid of the bad and keep the rest. Otherwise, you would have nothing at all. After she finished slicing the tomatoes, she got a couple of hot beers out of the refrigerator and took one out to Eddie, carrying Gracie with her. How's Gracie doing in this heat? Eddie asked her after taking a big swig. She's gone back to sleep. I think babies deal with heat better than adults. After all, she's only been out of the oven for a few months. 
She patted her stomach to indicate the oven she referred to. We're going to have to find some malathion, she said. Every tomato is infested with maggots. Fruit flies, maybe. Fruit flies? We've never had fruit flies around here. I think there are a lot of these flies we have never had around here before. Maybe they're moving north with the warmer winters. I suppose that is possible. I've never been bitten by flies like I have lately. They hurt like hell. Your neck is covered with bumps. Some of them are mosquito bites. When I get under the shade trees to cool off, the mosquitoes and gnats attack me. Gracie woke up with a loud hysterical cry. Oh my gosh, Janet began waving her hand over Gracie. The flies are all over her. I guess one bit her. Let's go into town and get some malathion for the plants and some kind of netting for Gracie, and we will get some DEET, too. With the hot, wet summers we've been having, maybe we should worry about malaria and yellow fever. Janet made Eddie go in and get cleaned up for town. There were still some green tomatoes that they could save if they hurried with the malathion, and the tomato plants were not going to set any more fruit for a while because of the heat. Janet, would you come and look at a couple of these sores on my neck? Eddie called from the bathroom. Look at the back of my neck, would you? There are three or four big pimples that have come up all of a sudden, and I can't see them good in the mirror. She had him bend his head over in the window light and saw four hard knots at the hairline. They appeared to have something in them, like dried up pus. These were probably some old pimples that he had just not noticed before, and now they had that hard, wax-like substance still inside. Once cleared out, they would heal up quickly. She pressed on it gently to see what would happen. The substance seemed to begin to move out of the little hole in Eddie's skin, so she pressed harder. Suddenly it popped and spewed like droplets over Janet's face. Shit! What's the matter? Eddie asked. I got pus all over my face. Hope you don't have that MRSA shit. She was rummaging under the sink and stood up with a bottle of mouthwash in her hand. She poured some in her hand and began rubbing it all over her face. It was the closest thing to a disinfectant that she thought might be safe to use this way. Then she washed her face in the sink with soap and water. A couple of pimples doesn't mean I've got MRSA, Eddie said, irritated at her accusation. I know. Let me pour some alcohol on your neck anyway. She had him bend over in the light again. What the hell is that? There is something hanging out of that pimple. Let me get the tweezers. She delicately pulled the waxy, stringy, skin-like material out of the hole in Eddie's neck. Oh, my God, I'm going to be sick. What the hell is it? Eddie asked, standing up. She handed him the tweezers as she ran to throw up in the toilet. Ugh, it's a magnet, a squashed one. I've got maggots in my neck. Janet, you've got to get the rest of them out. Hurry. Nope, I don't do maggots. You're going to the doctor. Why can't you do it? I want them out now. I think I'm going to faint. What if I faint in the car? I'll drive. I'm not going near those things. This is why they have doctors. I hate maggots. Okay, but hurry up and get ready. What if they burrow into my spinal cord? Oh, Jesus. They loaded Gracie into her car seat and headed toward town in the truck. As they passed the next house down the road, they saw Mr. Swenson out in his vegetable patch. What is he doing, Eddie asked. Looks like he's tearing up his garden with a hoe. I can sympathize. Janet turned on the radio to the Farm Report, her favorite program. In addition to the fruit flies now endangering the state's fruit crop, See, Eddie, she said, fruit flies. I knew it. These are not fruit flies on my neck. I hope they have finally gotten a shipment of malathion at the garden center. These flies have really gotten out of control. What is that ahead? Looks like a cloud of something. Ash? Insects. Oh, my God, it's a big cloud of flies. Then they were in it, and you could barely see the road ahead. Janet had to slow the truck almost to walking speed in order not to outdrive visibility. They could see the insects better now. 
flies, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of flies. Good Lord, Janet, where could all these flies have come from? It was dark as night around the truck, but in a few minutes they began to see some sky again and the flies began to thin out. Janet pulled over and wiped the windshield with a rag to remove the remnants of the dead and dying flies. At least these are not biting, Eddie said. Can you imagine being in a cloud of deer flies like that? They hit the freeway then in the rush hour traffic. They had to slow for one accident after another. The police were everywhere. When they pulled into the clinic parking lot, there were several people already waiting at the door for the office to open, and there were several others headed toward the door from the parking lot. I think I'm getting an ear infection again, Janet said as she pulled up to the front door. Maybe I should see the doctor too. When they called Eddie's name, Janet picked Gracie up in her bassinet to go back with Eddie, hoping to get a free office visit and a prescription for her ear. On the way down the crowded aisle, she accidentally jostled a man who was bent over in his chair and holding his hand over his eye. She turned to apologize and he looked up at her, momentarily uncovering his eye. She thought she would scream. Inside the man's eye, looking out through his cornea the way a person might gaze out a bay window, was a little white worm. The man saw the horror in her face and put his head back down, covering his eye again with his hand, shuddering at what he knew Janet had seen. Janet suddenly felt disoriented and ill, but she managed to follow Eddie back to one of the examination rooms. The nurse came right in. She seemed to be in a rush. What seems to be the problem, she asked. I've got worms in my neck. Let me take a look. He bent over and showed her his neck. She made some notes. Do they hurt yet? Yeah, they're starting to. Sometimes it feels like I'm being stuck with needles. Do you know what they are? We've been seeing a breakout of human bot fly, but these look like screw worms. We have seen some of them too lately. One of the punctums looks empty. Did you extract one of the larvae already or did it come out by itself? I guess you mean the holes in my neck? We um, extracted one, but it didn't go so well. The nurse made some more notes. The doctor will be right with you, she said as she left the room. The doctor came in almost immediately, holding the same chart open in his hands. He had Eddie bend over again while he poked at the skin around the punctures and watched the results through a magnifying lens he had strapped to his head. Screw worms, all right. There's a guy in your waiting room with one in his eye, Janet blurted out. In his eye? The doctor's mouth fell open. Wait here, and he rushed out of the room. It looks like we're not in first place anymore, Eddie, Janet said, lifting Gracie from her bassinet and sitting down in the only chair. Gracie was fussy and unhappy about being in this strange place with its chemical smells. She would not sit still, but kept kicking her legs as if she might walk out of that place on her own if things did not move quicker. After an interminable wait, the nurse came back in. The doctor has gotten really busy, but he said to try this. What is it, Eddie asked. Petroleum jelly. What does that do? The idea is that this will suffocate them, but before they die, they are going to make U-turns in their little holes and crawl out looking for air. Why don't you just pull them out? They have little barbs all over their bodies to hold them in place. Once they are turned around, the barbs will point down, so even if they don't come all the way out, you can grab them and pull them right out. She began to smear a thick layer of jelly over the affected area. We don't know how long this will take, so you just sit tight. I'll come back to check on you in a few minutes. I think I'm allergic to this stuff, Eddie said. My sinuses are starting to itch. I'm going out to the car to get something for Gracie to eat. I'll be back in a minute. Janet left Gracie with Eddie and went out across the parking lot in the direction of the car. There was a strange man standing near their car with his back to her. When he turned around at the sound of the car door opening, Janet nearly screamed. He was wearing a gas mask and earmuffs, and at first glance, Janet thought he was one of the flies grown to human size. 
he carried a large sign that said, And the Lord did this. Despite the large insectoid eyes and the proboscis of the mask, she realized he was probably not there to hurt anyone, but she kept the car between them anyway. She opened the car door and got out a sack of baby supplies. The sack was full of flies, but she shook them out into the parking lot. Lady, he said to her, his voice muffled by the mask, you might want to put some cotton in your ears. What? What for? To keep the flies out. That's what some of us are out here for. We are handing out cotton and surgical masks. No thanks, I'm good. These flies get into your ears and nose and anywhere they can lay eggs. I have a sack full of stuff for protection. You should take some. He did not seem as crazy as one might assume from his sign. What does your sign mean, she asked him. It is a reference to the plagues of Egypt. The Lord sent flies to make the Pharaoh listen. Listen to what? The flies are here because the planet has gotten warmer. These are flies that we had mainly gotten rid of in this country, but they still did fine in warmer countries. Now this country has gotten warm enough for them to come north. Interesting, but I've got to go. Our government is like the Pharaoh. It won't listen. We could have done something. We still can. We just need to get enough people to listen. Otherwise, this could be the beginning of the end. So he was one of those crazy climate change nuts, she realized. Vigorously shaking her head at his message and keeping a wary eye on him, she locked the car and headed back to the doctor's office, glancing over her shoulder at the man from time to time as he still held out his paper sack to her. She knew the biblical reference now that he had reminded her of it. She was always a little suspicious of people who went around quoting the Bible, but especially so when what they were saying was so contrary to biblical teachings. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Waving the flies away from her face, she ran back to the clinic. When she came back into the examination room, Eddie had a gauze bandage over his neck and the nurse was giving him a shot in the arm. You are lucky, the nurse was telling Eddie. Lucky? Why lucky? Janet asked. Lucky they haven't gone deeper. They eat living tissue and can be extremely painful and even lethal if they hit the right organs. Did you get them out? Janet asked the nurse. No, the nurse said, but they will probably come out this afternoon or evening. Keep checking under the gauze. You'll see them when they come out and then you can pick them off and dispose of them. Well, what the hell did we come all the way to town for? Janet asked. I don't do maggots. Jesus. The nurse gave her a look. Any other time we would open up the wounds and extract them, but we've gotten really busy today. This is the best we can do under the circumstances. The doctor said these were screw worms. Are they like what cattle used to get? Yes, same thing. Janet's eyes got wide. I used to see them down in South Florida. They were awful. Sometimes we would just shoot a cow if we didn't find it in time to save it. Eddie gave her a frightened look and rushed out of the examination room as if he had heard enough. As they passed through the waiting room, a woman was bent over in her chair and throwing up on the rug, the receptionist rushing toward her with a trash can. Look, Janet, God, I think I see maggots in her puke. He looked even more frightened now as he thought about his predicament and how it might end. Janet held Gracie protectively on the far side of herself as she purposely looked away from the woman who was puking maggots. I don't want to look or even hear about it or there will be a chain reaction. I already feel sick. Don't say another word. Let's get out of here. Let's go down to the farm supply and get some malathion and some netting. And some DEET. Lots of DEET. Inside the store, the shelf where they kept the malathion was empty. It was always empty of late. Janet called a clerk over. Do you actually carry any of this stuff anymore? We can't hardly get it, and when we do, we sell out. Eddie found a display for a DEET product guaranteed to protect against biting flies. There was one can left. 
Get it and let's go. I'm not feeling well. I didn't get to see the doctor about my ear infection, and now it feels like it is turning into a sinus infection. She began to carry Gracie to the car. Wait, he said. The back of your head is covered with flies. Well, get them off, she began shaking her head and brushing her hair with her hands. You want some deet? Damn it, either that or just shoot me. I can't stand much more of this. You hear me, Eddie? I can't stand it. On the way home, they tried rolling down the windows in the car to blow the flies out as they drove, but just as many blew in as blew out. Gracie became more fussy as they drove. Did you feed Gracie? Eddie asked. No, she didn't want it. She sure is fussing about something. Did you check to see if something was sticking her? Yeah, she's fine. She may have wet herself, but I don't want to change her with all these flies around. I'll do it when we get home. When they got off the freeway and the wind noise was not quite so bad, she turned on the farm report again, saying they will be unable to meet demand for corn this season because of losses to the tropical ear maggot, a fly larva not normally found this far north. I am so sick of flies and maggots, Janet said. I can't believe I am saying this, but I cannot wait until winter. Being warned to inspect their hogs, sheep, and cattle daily for screw worms and other fly pests of livestock, including bot, the radio continued. Did you hear that, Eddie? Screw worms. Oh, my God, they are horrible. You're telling me. Nationwide apple crop failure. Can you turn that radio down, Eddie asked. It is way too loud. I have a terrible headache. What? Turn where? Janet asked. He reached over and turned the volume knob himself. What'd you do that for? Janet asked. Too loud. Have you gone deaf? My ears feel all stopped up. I can barely hear you. Eddie turned around in his seat and helped Gracie with her bottle. Gracie was grimacing and chewing on the nipple with more than usual vigor. After a while, Eddie said, It looks like you're going to get your wish for an early winter. The trees are already turning brown. What? The trees, he shouted. What about them? Nothing. Never mind. They sure are turning early. That's what I said. What? Nothing, he shouted. Beelzebub, she shouted back. Jesus Christ, what are you yelling about? I was trying to think of the name of the Lord of the Flies. He stared at her in concern. There was a man back near the clinic. Yeah? He had a sign that said the Lord did this. What is that supposed to mean, he shouted. It is a biblical reference to the plagues of Egypt. One plague was flies. The Bible said, and the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarm of flies. I always wondered how flies could ruin an entire country. When I first saw the guy on the parking lot, I thought he really was Beelzebub. He had on a gas mask and looked like a giant fly. Janet was beginning to pick up speed again when, without warning, she jerked the wheel to the left and turned into Mr. Swinson's driveway. The flies were thick here and they swarmed in through the car's open windows. What are you doing? I bet Mr. Swinson has some mouth eye on. Hurry up, I've had all the flies I can stand for one day, and so has Gracie. Gracie was whimpering loudly in her car seat, but until the car had stopped, Eddie had not been able to hear her. Janet walked up to the front porch where Mr. Swinson was sitting in a rocking chair with a beekeeper's veil over his head and a bottle of whiskey by his foot. Hi, Mr. Swinson, she said. How are the bees? Gone. Gone? What happened to them? One damn thing after another. Why are you wearing the veil? Got a fly problem. Can't figure it out. Must be something dead around here. She could barely make out what he was saying. He was speaking so quietly, and her head was throbbing. Do you happen to have any malathion I could borrow? Sure, about half a quart bottle of concentrate in the shed, he pointed. Won't do no good, though. Okay, thanks. He shook his head as she walked off. 
He found the bottle and walked back to the car, yelling her thanks at Mr. Swenson. As they pulled into their own driveway, she noticed several dead birds lying about. No wonder it is so quiet, she muttered. I wonder where the dog is. They did not have time to worry about that right now, because the flies had begun pouring into the car. Eddie quickly undid Gracie from her car seat, and they ran for the house. Several hundred flies came in with them. They began swatting them with rolled-up newspapers until the papers were wet with fly juice, and they were exhausted. Janet held her head and began to cry. She was feeling dizzy and nauseated. Eddie continued to swat flies, but there seemed to be no end to them, and the window screens were covered in them, making an early evening inside the house. I need to make a pie, Janet said, getting up and heading for the kitchen. A pie for Mr. Swenson to thank him for the malathion. I'm going to lie down, Eddie said. My head is killing me now, and I think I'm going deaf, too. Check on Gracie before you lie down. She may need a new diaper. Oh, and I just thought of something. Check her hair for maggots. She prepared the apples by cutting out all the wormy spots, using at least twice as many apples as she normally would. Several times she lost track of what she was doing and why. But making a pie seemed a very normal thing to do, and she needed to feel normal. The apple pieces fell wherever they might on the floor, on the counter, in the sink. Once she slipped and hit her head on the cabinet, even that seemed relatively normal, and helped explain her headache. But didn't she already have a headache before she hit her head? She couldn't remember. When she had assembled all the ingredients, she slipped the pie into the oven. She looked at all the wormy pieces of apple lying around the kitchen and began to cry again. Oh well, she said, wiping her tears. I guess it will be peach pies from now on. She staggered and fell hard on the kitchen floor. She rolled over on her back, moaning, but no help came. She must have slipped on something, she thought, but at least the floor was somewhat cool and solid as well. After a bit, she pulled herself up and got a hot beer out of the fridge. She drank it down and then had another. She put on her insulated mittens and took the pie out of the oven. Thank God, it looked just right. It might be the last apple pie she would ever cook, the last apple pie in the world. She set it on the counter to cool and shoot away some flies before laying a large towel over it for protection. She then gathered up all the apple peelings along with all the rotten vegetables she had picked earlier and put them in a bucket to take to the compost heap. The family cat was lying asleep on the compost heap. At least she looked to be asleep, because his sides were moving. But as Janet drew closer, she saw that they were not moving in any normal way. Instead, something seemed to be bubbling and boiling inside of his skin, making it move up and down in small, disconnected, rippling convulsions. It was difficult to tell for certain, as everything seemed to be rippling and convulsing by degrees. Too much beer. Leaning over, she saw the cat's eyes were gone. Maggots were crawling in and out of the empty sockets, his nose, his mouth, even his anus. Oh my God, Janet gasped, covering her mouth to keep from vomiting and closing her eyes to try to conjure a more pleasant vision. Something must have attacked him and killed him, some stray dog or possibly a coyote. But if a dog, then why was he not torn up in any way? And if a coyote, then why was he still here at all? Coyotes did not leave their food behind. She dumped her scraps so that none spilled on him and promised him a decent burial later. She unsuccessfully shooed the flies away from the door as she went back in the house. What was that noise? Did someone cry out? The buzzing of flies was so loud she could hardly hear anything except that buzzing, scraping, chewing sound that seemed to come from everywhere. And her ears were really starting to hurt. She needed to get the pie down to Mr. Swenson so that she could take her decongestant and lie down for a while. Too many things had happened today, 
and the damn flies were driving her crazy, crawling over her face and mouth until she had given up fighting them. She found a cardboard box that the pie would fit in and unsteadily put the pie in the car. Maybe she had drunk the beers too quickly. It was becoming more difficult to determine up from down or sideways. Every time she opened the door to go in or out, hundreds of flies swarmed into the house. Eddie, she yelled, can you take care of these flies? I'm running a pie down to Mr. Swenson. On the way out of the driveway, she saw the dog. He was standing out in the yard and throwing up. Dogs do that all the time, though, so no matter. He might even re-eat the good parts, just like she used the good parts of the apples and the tomatoes. Mr. Swenson was no longer on his front porch. He was out in the yard on all fours in very similar fashion to how she had last seen the dog. He was either studying the bees in the clover, or most likely drunk from too much whiskey, she thought. Mr. Swenson, are you all right? she asked, kneeling hard beside him. He did indeed have the whiskey bottle in one hand, and it was half empty. He rolled over on his back into his own vomit, and she lifted the beekeeper's veil off his head. It was heavier than expected, because, Jesus Christ, it was full of maggots. How in hell had maggots gotten into Mr. Swenson's veil? Mr. Swenson, what have you been doing? What is going on around here? Go in the house and get my gun. What? Who's gone? What? Who's gone? My gun, he tried to shout. Get my gun. His voice had a very nasal quality, and he seemed to choke on his words. Who are you planning to shoot? Janet asked, still thinking she was talking to a drunken man. Me. I don't think that is a very good idea. Let me help you up to the porch so we can figure out what to do with you. I brought you an apple pie. It's in my head. No, it's still in the car. Why would I put it in the shed? The lights flashing. My head is exploding. Good Lord, the flies are in my head. The Lord of the Flies. Janet looked thoughtful. Did you see Bills above today? Mr. Swenson tilted his head back, turned up the bottle of whiskey, and poured it into his nostrils. Oh, my God, Mr. Swenson, are you trying to drown yourself? She tried to pull the bottle away, but failed as he fought to keep it. He rolled over, got back on his hands and knees, and began desperately blowing the whiskey out through his nose, gasping, wheezing, and choking as he did so. Along with the whiskey, he blew out numerous maggots onto the grass. The world went gray for Janet, then black, and when the colors returned, she found herself lying on the grass herself next to where Mr. Swenson was now throwing up, just as the dog had been. Everyone was throwing up these days. She thought she might join in. In Swenson's vomitus, she could see little things crawling about, and the world began turning gray again. Mr. Swenson repeated his self-medication, and Janet did not try to stop him this time. It did seem to be productive, although painful in the extreme. Perhaps having maggots in one's sinuses was worse than having whiskey in them. If so, then it must be really bad. Her sinuses were getting worse as well. She considered the whiskey treatment. The whiskey apparently worked, because now Mr. Swenson lay perfectly still. She picked up the bottle he had been dousing himself with, saw there were still a few swallows left, and drank it dry. Maybe that would ease the pain in her head. Mr. Swenson suddenly jumped up and ran toward the house, with Janet staggering along right behind him, not quite knowing what they were running from, and too afraid to look. He reached the inside screen door and grabbed his double-barrel shotgun. He placed the barrel under his chin and pulled the trigger. Janet was not sure if she had fainted at this or if the blast had knocked her out. She woke up soaking wet with sweat, and her ears felt like pencils had been jabbed into them. Mr. Swenson was lying on his back on the porch. His head looked like a squashed tomato, except covered in flies, and she had bits of that tomato all over her. Every pink and red gobbet that was stuck to her had its own cluster of flies. 
either trying to sop it up through their tiny gas masks or lay eggs upon it. Little Beelzebubs were everywhere. She made a feeble attempt to wipe herself clean, but she wanted nothing more than to lie down and have a good cry. All of her tomatoes were ruined, and Mr. Swenson looked like he would never be the same, and she had forgotten where she had left her pie. Ah, there it was in the car. Somehow, she was also in the car, driving. She did not see the dog as she pulled into her own driveway, but she thought she could hear him barking somewhere, and buzzing, and chewing. She knew she should bury the cat before he drew flies. She almost laughed at herself for that thought, realizing how tired and addled she must be. She paused briefly to hold her head between her hands. I've had a concussion, she thought, in a fleeting moment of clarity. Nothing else could make my head hurt so bad. She looked up. How did I get home? she asked herself. Was she drunk? Was it the whiskey? I need Eddie. She carried the pie back into the house with one arm waving the other wildly in the air as a defense, only letting a few hundred flies in as she stumbled clumsily through the door. She set the pie on the countertop, and several flies flew out from under the towel. Seeing this, she pulled the towel away and saw the tight little row of eggs, and knew the pie was already fly-blown. Damn it! She threw the pie into the trash can. She stood there a minute looking down at the pie. The last pie she might ever make. The last apple pie in the world. She got a plate from the cabinet and reached into the trash can to lift the pie back out. She didn't know when she would ever have fresh apples again. Sometimes one just has to eat around the bad parts, or there won't be anything at all. The pie fell apart in her trembling hands and mixed even more thoroughly with the coffee grounds and eggshells and floor sweepings and maggots that were already in the trash. Damn it! Damn it! She picked up the trash can and threw it, contents and all, out into the yard. Then she collapsed on the floor and began to cry, her head shaking nervously from side to side. This day had not turned out well at all. She pulled a bottle of vodka down from the cabinet and took a few large gulps. She briefly considered pouring some into her sinuses, but decided that was crazy. Why would she think of that? Had she seen someone else do that? She couldn't remember. After she had recovered somewhat and washed her hands in the kitchen sink, she went to the back of the house and crept quietly into the bedroom in case Gracie was asleep. There was something she meant to talk to Eddie about, but the infernal buzzing in her ears drove it out of her mind. Perhaps Eddie would remember what it was. God, her head hurt. She saw Eddie lying on the floor, the pistol still in his hand. She saw the pale bits of brain spattered on the walls. She saw the maggots crawling across the red-stained carpet, looking for a place to pupate and she saw the thick red blood dripping from the crib like strawberry jam, making another large spreading stain beneath it. She looked inside the crib and saw what Eddie had seen when he had gone to change Gracie's diaper. Well, it looks like Daddy did not finish what he started, she said, and now he is drunker than Mr. Swenson, and he spilled strawberry jam on your bib. That Daddy is a mess. She took the diaper and the mass of maggots it contained and dumped it in the diaper pail. She powdered Gracie's bare pubic bones stripped clean by the efficient maggots and put a clean diaper on her child. She took a clean towel and wiped the red spatters off Gracie's face, now crawling with maggots from every orifice and empty socket. Then she turned back to Eddie. You can't sleep on the floor, Eddie. You'll get a crick in your neck. She tried to pick him up, but he was too heavy. She let him fall back on the carpet, his head making a squishing sound as it hit. As soon as you sober up a little, you need to get back in bed. She went into the kitchen. She was so hungry. There were plenty of places where people ate worms, weren't there? 
Well, that was one thing there was plenty of. She took a bowl and a spoon and went back into the bedroom. She scooped up enough off the carpet to make a good meal and went back into the kitchen to eat. If you can't beat them, eat them. That's what I always say. Sometimes you just have to eat the bad parts or there won't be anything to eat at all. She puked up what she had eaten. Wiping her mouth on her sleeve, she considered the state of things. She could learn to eat maggots eventually. She would find ways to prepare them so that Eddie and Gracie would like them too. But she had discovered you have to chew them well. Otherwise, they cling to the inside of your throat. She held her head between her hands. Lord, her head hurt, and it spun and swam, and things were becoming strange. Mr. Swenson came into the house with his squashed tomato head. Beelzebub was in my head, he said, but I got him out. You can, too. The man from the clinic parking lot came in with his sign. The Lord did this, he said, and offered her some cotton. But when she tried to stuff the cotton into her ears, it turned into maggots. The dog was howling in the yard, and there was the constant sound of flies hitting the windows from outside. Why did they want in, she wondered. The house was already filled with flies. Flies covered her hands and face, crawling in and out of her nose and ears, and taking sips from the tears in her eyes and the flecks of saliva in the corners of her mouth. She had quit trying to brush them away. It was useless. If one got in her mouth, she simply chewed and swallowed. The Lord did this, she thought. But why? She went to church. Why send a plague here? Had the Lord gone mad? Why did he turn her pie into maggots? Why did he ruin her tomatoes with black, rotten cores? Mr. Swenson's head was like a tomato. She could see it now, and he was fine. He had taken out the black putrid center of his head with his gun, and now he was good to go. He had killed his Beelzebub, and she could too. She had a black putrid center in her head as well. It was black and rotten and wormy. Mr. Swenson had taken out his black rotten core. She should do that also. That is what one does. One takes out the bad part and keeps the rest. Otherwise, there is nothing. She found Eddie still on the floor and took the gun from his hand. If Gracie wakes up and starts crying, she probably wants her bottle. I've already changed her diaper. She sat down beside Eddie. The dog had quit howling. All she could hear was the sound of flies praising their Lord. She could hear the name Beelzebub over and over in her head. The Lord had done this. The Lord of the flies. Buzz, buzz, Beelzebub. She should kill Beelzebub. Stop this madness. Buzz, buzz, Beelzebub. He was the only one with the sign. He was a giant fly in the parking lot. Only she knew who he was. It was up to her. The Lord of the Flies had done this. Beelzebub had done this. She would take the gun, drive the car into town, and kill Beelzebub. And then, if she aimed the gun just right, she should be able to take out the black, wormy center of her head as well and leave the rest. It would take Beelzebub out of her head, out of her mind. Then she would get Eddie, and they would go out into the garden with Gracie, and the buzzing would be over. So you can find the book that that story came from and the other books that Jim has written on Amazon. So go check it out. Give them a read. They're pretty good. So I do have one more story. Back when we got the idea of doing the, the Halloween stories, I'm in a Facebook group, a horror Facebook group, and I posted in there checking to see if anybody had a story that they'd like to read. I got a response from one of the members of the group, and she sent me a link to a story by, I think it's her brother-in-law. So we don't have an audible version of it, 
but I am going to include a link to the story in the in the podcast notes, and I would encourage you to to go visit and read that story. It's a really creepy story about dark, deserted highways and clowns. A pretty good combination. So, there you go. Check it out. Well, that's it for another show. I hope you enjoyed the the stories, and I want to thank uh, Juan and Gary for letting us do the show here at Park Hill uh, Park Hill Park Hill Barbershop. Y'all come by and visit them, get a shave. So, if you like the show, leave us some comments, like us on Facebook uh, or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. We're available on on Podbeam, which hosts the the podcast. We're also on iTunes. Uh, what else? iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Facebook. Uh, so, until next time. Talk to y'all later.